But again, it's good to be with you here today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to John chapter 11. We're going to be uh, looking around in between verses 21 to 44 as we consider the idea of loss and resurrection. And, and if you've been around for a little bit and you've been following our current sermon series, you'll recognize that uh, this is a little bit of a deviation from where uh, we've been headed. We've been looking at the stories Jesus told, uh, the way he taught um, through parables and things of that nature through the book of Matthew. But uh, as I just wrestled with the text I thought I was going to preach on and considered Easter and considered the context of this Easter, uh, I decided to change gears a little bit and come out of John chapter 11. And I'll explain why here in just a moment, but I want to start off by just reading to you the thesis statement uh, that Jesus is going to hold before us here on this Resurrection Sunday. He says this in John chapter 11, Jesus said to her, he's talking to uh, Martha at this point, uh, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's a fitting question for today in a day where we could just assume Easter in its contents, right? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Well, why this sermon on this day? Well, the context of this is Jesus is making this statement outside of the tomb of his friend Lazarus who just died. And as I thought about this Easter and considered uh, kind of the context of our moment, this Easter feels a lot different than last Easter, right? They've both been very unique Easters for us, haven't they? But this Easter feels different in the sense that, you know, the, the prevailing emotion last year I felt like was fear in my heart and the hearts of those I talked to, right? We were, we were just afraid of everything. What's going to happen? We were totally virtual. We actually didn't meet in this room last Easter. You know, I, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember your first grocery store run uh, during the pandemic. I felt like I was going to war. I'm like, click, 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 ready to go, right? Maybe that tells you a little bit about myself. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, you know, we were afraid. We were afraid of our groceries. We were afraid of our neighbors and friends and, and this little virus this week that we can't see. Yet in the midst of that, there was still a little bit of novelty. Do you remember that part? Maybe you didn't experience this, but some did. It's like, oh, I can watch church on the couch. That's different. Or, oh, the pace of life has come to a screeching halt, and I can make eye contact with friends and family, right? I'm not moving at mock speed. But the novelty wore off. The fear gave way to loss. Losses due to the pandemic. Losses due to various injustices. Losses due to the anger that this season has squeezed out of us and maybe the carnage uh, that we left behind as we took it out on others. There's been loss of life. We've lost mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and cousins and friends and husbands and wives and grandparents over the course of this season. In our own church, we've lost four, including our associate pastor Jacob Lee and in our broader church body, Mike Hollenbach, one of our former associate pastors. It's been a year of remarkable loss of life. There's been the loss of dreams, loss of proms and graduations, loss of vacation, retirement parties, fourth grade. There's been the loss of dreams. There's been the loss of relationships. I cannot tell you how many of you have approached me and said, my son, my daughter, my mother, my father, my friend will no longer speak to me because of who I voted for in November. Or because I will or I won't wear a mask. Prof- 
profound loss of relationship. There's been the perceived loss of safety, future security, dignity. The list could go on and on, but loss has been profound this year. That's the sort of Easter that we're engaging with. I had a friend this week say, I haven't even begun to process the loss that I've experienced over the course of this last year. Friends, when we are faced with loss, we tend to make conclusions about God. He doesn't care. He fell asleep at the switch. He's mechanical, right? This Easter Sunday, does Jesus really get it? I mean, does he just want us to show up happy clappy at church on Resurrection Sunday and go the whole Easter bunny and Easter egg hunt route? Like, is, is that really... Is that really the gear I'm supposed to slip into this Easter? Well, let me pray for us as we get going here this morning and and look at the thesis Jesus holds before us and the context in which he gives it. Let me pray. Lord, as as I begin this morning, I have this overwhelming sense to confess to you that the line we just sang, no guilt in life or fear in death, is something that I just simply have forgotten. This week, you reminded me over and over again where I had functionally forgotten that because of the cross and the empty tomb, I bear no guilt. That there really is not anything to fear. Lord, I have feared much. I just confess that to you. And Father, I confess to you that the very claim you just made, that you are the resurrection and the life, There have been many times in the last week where I've actually believed I could find life somewhere else. Where I think I can bring resurrection through a whole host of different false lives, false idols. And so, Lord, would you wake us up and call us out of the tomb (laughs) this morning? Lord, where this has just become another Easter that we have to go to and sit through a service and go eat some ham at the end of the day. Lord, would you just stop us in our tracks? Would you convince us, Holy Spirit, that you are the resurrection and the life? We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so two main points we're going to look at. The first is going to be disappointment and lament. Disappointment and lament. Anthony, this is not starting like a typical Easter sermon. Well, just... Bear with me. Disappointment and lament. That's how this context begins. As we begin to look at, okay, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. What was going on around it? And it was plainly that. It was disappointment and lament. Here's what was going on. John 11:1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. All right, so here's the characters and and what's happening here. You have Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It says here that these are three friends of Jesus. They loved each other very much. Mary is Mary Magdalene, who, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, this uh, is a woman who earlier in the Gospels, Jesus cast demons out of her. 
Later on in one more chapter in the the book of John, you will also see that she is the one who anoints Christ's feet with expensive oils and wipes His feet with her hair. They care deeply for each other. In the, in the series The Chosen, if you haven't seen it, I would commend it to you highly. But in the, at the end of the first uh, episode, uh, it's this picture. You see Mary. You see Jesus uh, having cast demons out of her and, and having approached her after she was really despised by the culture, by the, the type of life that she lived. And, and Jesus basically approached her in an alley and called her by name. He said, Mary Magdala. And she just stops. And she turns. She goes, how do you know my name? And he says, I have called you by name, and you are mine. To me, every time I see it, I cry because it paints this picture of the depth of the relationship that they had. And so when her brother Lazarus, who Jesus also loved, the Bible says, grew sick, she's like, he's cast demons out of me. He can certainly do something about my brother's illness. So she says, Your brother, or my brother is sick. And she was certainly expecting him to come and to heal him. But what happens? Verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. All right, can we just stop for a second? This shouldn't read that way. Jesus loved them? So he waited longer and let Lazarus die? Really? That word so in the Greek can also be translated as therefore. He loved them, therefore he drug his feet. That certainly does not make sense, does it? Now, what I didn't read was verse 4, where Jesus is talking to the disciples. Mary and Martha are not aware of this conversation, but he says, this is not an illness that brings ultimate death. It is therefore my glory. So know that Jesus, of course, has a plan behind it, but But what his plan for glory didn't do is erase the disappointment and the hurt and the loss that Mary and Martha were getting ready to experience. What happens? Well, exactly what you would expect would happen. Lazarus died because Jesus didn't show up on time. Right? Here's the response of the two ladies. Martha, when she saw Jesus, when Jesus finally arrived, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know the tone of her voice when she said it. But knowing Martha and the rest of Scripture was probably a little curt, right? Mary, a little bit different in her approach. When she came to where Jesus was, she saw him and she just fell down. Saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you imagine the disappointment? That they are voicing to Jesus, to his face. They know he's God. So let me just stop and just make this point. Is that he did not rebuke them? He didn't say, Mary, get up. Martha, calm down. He absorbed their disappointment. He absorbed their grief. And so friends... I just want to give freedom this Resurrection Sunday that if you are experiencing disappointment with Jesus, you're not alone. There's been disappointment with Jesus on other Resurrection Sundays. But here's the other thing I think this passage encourages us to do or maybe not do. 
It's not saying if you're disappointed with Jesus, deconstruct your faith, stiff-arm him, and run away from him. Rather, Jesus is showing us that he is a personal God, and he invites us to come and bring our disappointments to him, to pound on his chest, because he can take it. So let's look at Jesus' response. How did Jesus respond? We're going to look at Mary. We'll look at Martha, his response to Martha in a moment. But here's what I want you to do. I want, I want you to take off the kind of cerebral lenses that we can oftentimes approach Scripture with, and I want you to sit in the emotion of Jesus right now. All right? Just, just identify with his ethos and how uh, he is emoting in this moment. Here's what happened. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come to her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. There was a cave and a stone lay against it. All right, so what did we learn about Jesus' response? Well, the first thing is, is we see that he actually got angry. Now, you didn't see the word angry, but you did see a couple of other words that give us that picture. One, we hear that he was deeply moved. It says it in verse 33 and in verse 38. Those terms, deeply moved, uh, essentially get at this point that his soul felt scolded by the death that he saw, that it upset him greatly. And then that term, greatly troubled, can also be interpreted as caused a riot. When he saw this death, It caused a riot in his soul. He was indignant and angry at death. He did not simply gloss over it. Jesus was appropriately angry. Well, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, that's probably one of the most beautiful teachings on the impact of the resurrection in the life of those who believe in Jesus. He says this, and this is the same passage that talks about, uh, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? He says this just a little earlier, and this is another picture of Jesus being angry at death. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Friends, we want an angry Jesus when it comes to death. One that hated it at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and one who will ultimately destroy it in the time to come. So that's his anger. The second thing I want you to see is his lament. Verse 35, did you read it? It's really long, ready? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He wept to the point where other people said, look how he loves him. That was an eyewitness account. John wants you to know that he had like cry face. It was uncontrollable crying at the tomb of his friend. He didn't get misty. He didn't just shed a tear. He wept. Growing up, this verse was more trivia than it was meaningful. Right? How many people, if you grew up in the church, is like, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? John 11, 35, yay! You know, right? Like, that, that's a thing in some churches. If you didn't grow up in the church, sorry. We just do that sometimes. 
But in 2012 and 2013, those two little words became one of the most important verses in my life. You see, I was headlong into what was diagnosed as an anxiety disorder in that moment, and what a lot of counseling unpacked is that I was walking into seminary with 30 years of ungrieved losses. I hadn't yet slowed down to think about the surgeries I had had, my father's disability, the long court case that ensued that, in my opinion, ended very unjustly towards him, the family and friends that just forgot him, the economic fallout that happens when you have a father who can't work, and when you live in an affluent society, and you lust after the very thing you can't have and hate it at the same time. I hadn't grieved the bullying. I hadn't grieved the death of friends and teachers. I hadn't grieved my near-death experience, and I didn't yet grieve the divorce of my parents. Friends, I'm not trying to hold before you my suffering badge of honor. In fact, I know there are many more in this room who have suffered far greater than I have. But I want you to know the man who's preaching this sermon has experienced disappointment with Jesus on Easter Sunday and every day in between. And oftentimes, my grief was met with triumphal language. Sometimes somebody would sit down with me and say, but God is preparing you for something great. And I just wanted to knock them unconscious when they said that. Because I didn't want something great in the future. I wanted my dad. I wanted my health. It wasn't until somebody sat down and shared these two little verses with me where it just hit me like a ton of bricks that the God of the universe was angry and grieved by every bit of that death and suffering that I had undergone and that he grieved with me. And so let me just invite you to consider this. Jesus is Savior and God. And friends, triumphal language is not bad. But here's what we learn from this. Is that we can never accuse Jesus of not caring. We can never accuse Jesus of not caring. The Jesus of the Bible is the God of gods who enters into the suffering of his creation. Jesus hates death and suffering more than you do. So much so that he wasn't willing to just weep and grieve over it. He was willing to engage with it himself on the cross. Friends, there is no other God in any other world religion that you will ever be able to find that grieves with you and then does something about it through the cross and the empty tomb. No other God, no other item, object, person that you can give your life to will ever be able to accomplish what Jesus Christ has while being that personal. So let's turn the corner to look at resurrection and life. Resurrection and life. Because what we see, this, uh, what Mary begins to see through the death of her brother, is that there actually was a plan in the loss. You see, Martha responds. So this is her response. She says, if you would have showed up on time, he would have lived. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha actually had really good theology. She said, I know that whatever you ask the Father, he'll give to you. And he says, your brother will rise again. And then she goes, I know he will, Jesus. I got the theological part right. He's going to rise again in the end. I'm going to be with him. It's going to be amazing. And Jesus just gently says, just, I want to redirect your gaze from, from the tomb and from your brother to me. I am the resurrection in life. Your faith is not in the abstract. Your faith is here in a person, and it's me. Friends, let me just say this, is that Jesus still, in this moment, took this horror and this tragedy and used it to gently grab Mary's chin and say, look at me. Take your eyes off of the things that you think will bring life. I am your resurrection, and I am your life. This is at least a part of Jesus' plan in this loss. This reminded me of an illustration that you may have heard before. Elizabeth Elliot, an author and wife of a missionary who was killed in the field. She talks about this shepherd on a British sheep farm cleansing the parasites from the sheep. What he would do is he would grab the sheep and, and he would throw them in the vat of disinfectant and hold them under the, wall, under the disinfectant. And it must have been an absolutely horrific sight because she was disturbed and she wrote this. She said, what must the sheep have been thinking when all of this was happening? She said, probably the sheep, if they could think, they would have said, I thought the shepherd cared. He's trying to kill me. What is he trying to do? On the other hand, of course... If the shepherd had not been doing that, the sheep couldn't understand why. They would be dead, or they would certainly be miserable. Elizabeth Elliot said, there's a plan, and the sheep can't see it, but we have a shepherd, and there's a plan. Friends, God has a plan for the loss that we see in this story, and it was that Martha would see his glory. We went through the book of Habakkuk in January. It's fitting for a pandemic. If you weren't here, go back and study it. Habakkuk is shaking his fist at God saying, how can you let your people, which would be equivalent to your church today, be so horrible? They're terrible. We're terrible. That's what Habakkuk is saying to God. And God says, I know I've got this. I'm raising up this horrible nation who are evil and destructive. The Babylonians are going to come take care of all this. Habakkuk is like, wait a minute. That's a worse solution than I would have ever imagined. What are you thinking? And God just tells him, get up on the watchtower and wait. There is a plan for you and my people in the loss, and ultimately it is this Savior who is standing outside of the tomb. Now let me just pause here, because I know I just talked about lament and anger and how triumphal speech hurt me when people came into my pain and loss and said, but God has a plan And I want to be careful with that, knowing that some of you aren't ready to turn that corner yet. 
And even as I say these things, I want you to hear it in the context of how Jesus identified in that first part of this passage. And I pray that as your ears and your heart are ready to absorb this, that you would consider this. Might Jesus, through loss, be gently grabbing your chin and redirecting your gaze from what you believe will bring you life to Himself? Tenderly, weeping, empathetically, directing your gaze to what might bring you true life. Let's finally talk about the impact of resurrection life. So what? What does this matter, Anthony? It's Easter. Yay, we're going to do this again next year. What's the point? Well, here's the end of the story. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. As you read this, this has to remind you of the empty tomb that we're reading about, about Jesus Christ. Rolling away a stone, the linen cloths on the ground. Martha didn't know it, but her brother's death was preparing her to see Jesus' glory. And what Martha also didn't know is she was going to be actually one of the first on the scene at Jesus' empty tomb. He was preparing her to be the first eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. So if you rewind just a little bit, I imagine... Jesus' words to her in that thesis that we started off with must have come flooding back to her. He said, I am the resurrection of life. He said two things. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, it sounds like Jesus is saying the same thing, uh, just, you know, in a funny way the second time, right? But I would offer you this. Jesus is actually teaching her the impact of the resurrection on her life to come and current. He's showing the difference between uh, the objective power of death and the subjective power of death, as Tim Keller refers to it. When he says, though you die, one day you will live, he's talking about the objective power of death that it no longer has over Martha. Now, one other thing to note, when he says, whoever believes in me, that term in the Greek is not the typical term for in It's E-I-S, which actually means into. So Jesus is saying something far more profound, like, hey, believe in that chair. right? Just go believe it exists. He says, no, if you believe in me, you actually enter into my life, and what happens to me now happens to you, which includes the resurrection. Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, you know what he says? He says, the grave had no power over Jesus. It couldn't hold him. Jesus had broken the objective power of death. Death could not hold Jesus. And so if we have our faith in Jesus Christ, death cannot hold us. Now, physical death, we all must physically die. But what is more fully in view here is a spiritual death. He's saying you will physically die, but you will also physically resurrect, and you will spiritually resurrect and be with me. 
for all of eternity, if you believe it. Why? Because the penalty of sin is death. But that penalty has been paid by Jesus Christ. When the penalty has been paid, it no longer has a right over us. If you go to jail for three years, when you've served your sentence on year three, day one, that penalty no longer has any authority over you. And Jesus said, I went to the cross to pay that penalty, and then I rose from the grave. And so if you are in me, the penalty has been paid, you are with me in resurrection, no longer does that death have objective power over you. Now the second statement is a little different, where he's talking about the subjective power, but he says, anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The tense there is different. That term lives is actually uh, real life right now. Present tense. It's happening right now. So it's saying, hey, this isn't like your future death we're talking about. We're talking about resurrection that overflows the riverbanks and splashes around in our lives today. You see, death has subjective power over us as well. I quoted Tim Keller here just a moment ago, but he often refers to this author, Ernest Becker, who was an atheist. He wrote a book in the 70s called The Denial of Death, and he talks about how religion uh, basically helps people deal with death. And he says, death tells you if there's nothing after death, then nothing I do here will matter, because in the end, everything I do will be forgotten. He says, our need for accruing wealth, our need for apocalyptic sex, all of those things comes from the fact that the secular culture has no way of dealing with the fear of death and no way to break its power over you. So we distract ourselves. We numb ourselves with toys and, and whatever else that may be. Friends, if we believe that death still has power over us, we will live in this life to try to avoid it at whatever cost we can. We'll numb it. We'll ignore it. We'll distract ourselves. And we'll destroy ourselves. And I would just say, has this last year taught us nothing? But that even within the church, we live as functional atheists, thinking that death is coming, and it's something to be feared. And so we're going to numb ourselves, and we're going to be angry when we get threatened by it. Right? 17th century poet George Herbert wrote a poem called Time. And it's really identifying the Christian's new take on death. It's written to death itself. And so let me read you a couple of lines. Hopefully I don't butcher it. He says, Perhaps some such of old did pass, who above all things loved this life, to whom thy sigh the hatchet was, which now is but a pruning knife. Christ's coming hath made man thy debtor, since by thy cutting he grows better. He's basically addressing death, saying, Death, before Jesus showed up, we feared you. You were the executioner. Something to be dreaded our whole lives. But with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you actually become the gardener. Pruning us and pulling us into the ground like a tulip bulb to bloom in April. Can you imagine that sort of lack of fear of death? I really wish they would have recorded what Lazarus did when he rose from the dead. I want to read that book. Can you imagine how he could have walked around? I would have liked to have thought I'd be like, hey, I rose from the dead. That dude raised me from the dead. He says, lift for me. I'm going to go do it. I'm not going to care. Because I know if I die again, he's just going to raise me back to life. 
Man, that changes the way we go about our day, right? Jesus makes this statement to Lazarus. Before he rises him, he says, Lazarus, come out. And so can I end with this thought? Christians who have fallen asleep to the resurrection, to the fact that death neither has objective nor subjective control over us any longer, to those of us, and myself included, who fall victim to constant fear, constant numbing ourselves, to the reality that our physical life will end, but it does not have victory over us, can we come out of that tomb? Can we beg the Spirit to cause us to live a resurrected life? Not one in fear, not one in anger, but one of sacrifice and love and total reliance upon our resurrection and life. Come out of the tomb. And for my friends who have not yet called on Jesus in faith, it is not a challenging formula to live into that resurrection life. Jesus basically says, just believe in me. Believe that I am the only thing that will give you true life. Turn away from that which will never deliver life. And if you simply do that, tell it to one other person, right? Articulate it to somebody. Don't just do it in a vacuum. But if we simply believe in him, we believe into him. The payment of penalty is ours. And that resurrected life is ours. Friends, this has been a profound year of loss. But this little picture in this small town of Bethany shows us that Jesus is not aloof. He is not numb to our suffering. He cares deeply, deeply enough to enter into it and to suffer the same. And then he demonstrates that he also acts upon our suffering through his death on the cross, and ultimately defeating that death, bringing us out of the tomb. Let me close this in prayer. Father, looking around this room, there are friends who have experienced loss unimaginable. For them, Father, would you meet them swiftly with the reality that you weep with them, that you hate what they've endured. And Father, would you remind them that you also have acted in history on their behalf to act again. And you are currently acting on their behalf. Bring comfort. Lord, for those of us who have given to the lie that we will find life somewhere else and that death is something to fear, even though we've called upon you, would you call us out of the tomb Would you remind us of your empty tomb? Would you remind us that that death and sin have no victory? And Father, for the heart that has never called on you, Lord, would you please let this be the day of their new life in you. Holy Spirit, do not let them go until their hearts have been drawn to you and you have regenerated and saved them. Surround them quickly by those who will love and shepherd and disciple them. 
Thank you for Easter. Let me pray these things in your name. Amen.